Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning into the Daily Standard Podcast. Today is June 25th, 2018. Uh, Charlie Sykes is on assignment today in lovely Aspen, Colorado, and I'm your host, Jim Swift, stepping in, joined today by Bill Crystal and Fred Barnes, uh, co-founders of the Weekly Standard, here to talk about their dear friend, the late Charles Krauthammer. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Jim. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So, so you guys uh, have known Char- Charles for decades, and he's been a contributing editor to the magazine for a long time. What uh, What are some of your favorite stories uh, in, in, in getting to know the man over all, over all those years? I mean, Fred, you actually worked with him at the New Republic before I got to Washington. And, yeah, for 10 years. And you actually really, you know, share, we're in the office with him every day. That was before he had, I think he had set up his own office on 19th yeah. Street, which mm-hmm. where he sort of held court and didn't yeah. uh, get out quite as much. No, we still yeah. saw him a lot, but it wasn't mm-hmm. quite the same. So you had the most sort of office experience with him. Well, I did. And uh, Charles was, uh, you know, uh, unique. Uh, he, he was uh, uh, very popular. In those days, uh, he was becoming a conservative. And... Of course, his famous article on the Reagan Doctrine, which uh, actually President Reagan didn't know was a doctrine until Charles wrote a piece and and described what it was. And it was American support for uh, anti-communist guerrillas, you know, revolutionaries in communist countries in in Nicaragua and Afghanistan and and a few others. And uh, as I recall, one of the people who liked that article the most, it was in Time magazine, (laughs) that was President Reagan. Uh, liked it, and I believe Charles was invited to the uh, the White House at some point. Uh, but one thing we uh, we, uh, we know about Charles is that uh, things like that didn't go to his head. And uh, but uh, I think that was a an important moment, though, uh, that Reagan doctrine piece, because it was I think it was the first really uh, conservative piece. Uh, at least that I'd read by him that didn't uh, you know, he was a very strong supporter of Israel before but that uh, that uh, is not an, an exclusively conservative position but the Reagan doctrine it was you know that reminds me that of the pieces he wrote for us too after leaving the you know after you left the New Republic mm-hmm. and I guess he remained a contributor there a little longer I think he eventually mm-hmm. broke ties with the New Republic which uh, and but he certainly st- when we started the Weekly Standard I remember how happy we were to have him as a contributing editor indeed uh, he came actually to some of our editorial meetings mm-hmm. and this is a little bit pre-internet or pre-email almost mm-hmm. so that you know it was actually people came to meetings in those days didn't just <laughs> uh, shoot email ideas and contributed to thoughts whether he was in the first issue mm-hmm. uh, and um, really a terrific piece and I will look was looking at his pieces and they're on our website. I mean, there are about more than 40 for the Weekly Standard, of which maybe a half of them were quite long, you know, yeah. two, three, four thousand mm-hmm. word pieces. I mean, that was the difference. You wrote the Weekly Column, but that mm-hmm. was 800 words. Yeah. And uh, pieces on space, on chess, uh, on on uh, computers, foreign policy, obviously. Mm-hmm. A very famous piece among, certainly among the pro-Israel world and the Jewish world on really on more than just Israel, but on sort of the fate of the Jewish people if something mm-hmm. were to happen to mm-hmm. Israel after mm-hmm. Zion, I think it was mm-hmm. called, in 1998. So he really wrote some fantastic pieces for both the New Republic and uh, and the Weekly Standard. It wasn't 
I don't mean to say this in any. He wasn't just a columnist, though. His columns, sixteen hundred of them, were yeah. fantastic too. Yeah, and, and and that's of course where he made his name, and and we capitalized on that, and and got him to write longer pieces that were and longer ones. I think almost all of them were on the cover, yeah. Uh, yep. and uh, and they and they were tremendous. One I loved in particular was about the United Nations, which used to be uh, opposing the United Nations, and uh, it, it was. Uh, He's generally a conservative position now, but back in the 50s, uh, when my parents, who were very conservative, opposed the the United Nations and remember the saying, uh, you know, get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. (laughs) And uh, my parents were a little little leery of the uh, New Republic when I went to work there. (laughs) And uh, and then uh, but Charles... uh, uh, wrote for us later that uh, uh, that that's something that was close to being to get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. A, a wonderful piece, but it shows you how Charles had changed and, and how uh, politics and conservatism had changed. I mean, Charles really was a kind of neoconservative in a way that I... Probably wasn't. I, mean, I was always more, always more conservative. My father really did move from being a liberal, anti-communist liberal mm-hmm. to a much more thorough conservative. And Charles had this very same progress in that respect. Mm-hmm. He generationally was a little more like, almost more like my parents' generation intellectually than mine. And and I think that gave him a real appreciation of, uh, you know, he, he was less dogmatic maybe than some of us and had an appreciation of the complexity of things, didn't move on every issue. Mm-hmm. And I think the critique of the UN was probably less how do I put it, you know, kind of theological or you know, with appeals to sovereignty and so forth, and more of a practical look. Is it actually increasing the chances of peace in mm-hmm. the world? Is it increasing people's well-being? Or is it actually providing excuses to de- dictators to do worse things? And, and I mean, he was a very empirical, hard-headed, realistic in a way that the early neoconservatives particularly were in that mm-hmm. respect. Uh, uh, I mean, he, and he really kept to that to the end, obviously. Yeah, I don't think he ever called himself a neoconservative. No, I, maybe not. Yeah, uh, the uh, but he but he compared himself uh, to the found. You know, I, I, in that conversation I did with him, mm-hmm. uh, where he talked a little more about himself than he normally does. Mm-hmm. He, he talked about growing up in Canada and going to school in Canada mm-hmm. and not having the same education or you know automatic reverence. Not that people in America really do, but anyway, that people in America might have. You might say for the American founding mm-hmm. fathers. And, you know, he didn't go to the Lincoln Memorial on class mm-hmm. trips. He was in mm-hmm. Montreal. He went to whatever they go to in Montreal, you know, <laughs> by that battle there, there and um, uh, with uh, General Wolfe and all that. And, uh, and, of course, it was the French were fighting the British at the time in the 60s in Montreal. Uh, and so he said he came and then he went to went to McGill and then he went to Oxford for a year and mm-hmm. then came to Harvard Medical School. Mm-hmm. So really he doesn't encounter – he studies this stuff, of course, and he's super smart, so he picks it up very quickly. But he didn't really encounter the American founders the way a lot of us did, maybe with a good college course where you realize, wow, that's really impressive. Mm-hmm. And I think it made almost more of an impact on him. He says that, that – the, and he was so attracted to their hard-headed realism. People mm-hmm. are – this is not a government of angels. Ambition has to counteract ambition. We need to build a lot of institutions and a constitution and safeguards against things going mm-hmm. off the rails. I mean, that was very mm-hmm. much his political view, very non anti-utopian, non-utopian. His last column mm-hmm. for the Post, I looked it up, what he 
uh, died. Um, it was in August of, of 2017, so about 10 months ago, was uh, about guardrails. And he mm-hmm. had some instances of what President Trump had done that week and that it was sort of the guardrails are holding. <laughs> and that's a very Charles-like um, yeah. attitude, mm-hmm. I think, a hard-headed mm-hmm. attitude mm-hmm. towards how democracy mm-hmm. can work. You know, he didn't talk about his family much or about himself much, but when you got to know him well, and some, and sometimes you would. And I remember spending oh about an hour after lunch at at his uh, office, and and uh, and somehow I got him to talk about his father, who was a remarkable figure, and 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 was in France, and then in Brazil, and Cuba, and Canada, and the U.S. I guess at the end, the uh, and his father was a a, a uh, an important political figure in France, but he knew when to get out. And Charles, one of the things that he loved about the U.S., the Founding Fathers were, were certainly uh, uh, one of them and so many other things. But I remember him, him telling me this uh, with real emphasis, and that is that America was the one place in the world where Jews were safe and they were not persecuted the way they had been everywhere else in the world for thousands of years. Uh, they weren't always uh, uh, safe in America, but but they are now, and uh, and Charles recognized that as as one of the great things about America. I agree. So you guys, uh, you know, knew him outside of the the editorial meetings and the green rooms and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You know, Fred, I know you like to go to Wizards basketball games. Yeah, he was a big fan of sports, especially yeah. baseball. Did you ever get to go to a baseball game with him? Oh yeah, I think uh, most of us went uh, a few times, and he had, you know, they had a, a a place in the stadium where he could sit and in, in his wheelchair with, a, with with somebody sitting beside him, as I recall. Yes, I don't. And, know. Did he get that extra seat for? I mean, maybe that they. That's the way they. I don't know. Honestly, he with, knew with, the owners. He knew the owners, but it may also be that if you're in a wheelchair, they do make room for sort of uh, someone who might have to be with you, you yeah. know. But in any case, it was great to go to games with Charles because <laughs> you got this extremely good seat yeah. in those in that section behind. Uh, and a lot of people would drop by yeah. uh, to say hello or, did you know, people like to uh, uh, not touch Charles, but they but they did like to go up and, and, uh, and not make a long conversation, but. But say something to him. Kind of reminds me of uh, the very first time we did the Broadmoor. I tweeted about this because I, I didn't know him at all. But I remember we we hadn't really planned for the you know valued attendees to mm-hmm. go get spend time with him, and people were trying to bother him during mm-hmm. dinner. And I kind of reprised my role as a college bouncer to kind of you know let the man eat his dinner. Catherine Lowe had asked him, you know, uh, who ran our events at the time, hey is it okay if people get pictures with you afterwards? And he took pictures with every darn person oh, yeah. in there. And I was trying to rush people through mm-hmm. to be respectful of his time. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he kind of said, you know, hey, you know, leave, leave, leave that be. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, these people, you know, are here and they want to see me. And I, I, I you know, I, I was really he, struck by that. Yeah, I, I was. I think at the first time he came to uh, the Broadmoor for the uh, Weekly Standard event, uh, he was on, in, in a, on, on stage where he spoke, I introduced him, and I don't remember anything I said, but I remember what happened afterwards. And Charles started to uh, uh, come down, and did come down, and was coming down in his wheelchair. And I forget what the path was, but anyway, somebody said, said, well, look, Charles doesn't want to, uh, he'll be mobbed by people, so once you go in and rescue him? And I said, okay, I will. And I said, uh, and I he came up to Charles and said, "Look, I'll I'll help you get out of here." And he and then he said, "I don't I don't want to get out of here. These people have paid a lot of money to come and hear me speak, and I'm gonna uh, I'd be happy to uh, talk to them." And of course, <laughs> they all came up to and had a long line. And uh, but Charles was very gracious about it. 
Yeah, we've gotten emails this last few days from people who took had photos taken with them and comments sort of how, you know, you can tell if you're someone begrudgingly a very quick photo when it's eager to have yeah. you move on. It's mm-hmm. someone who actually says where you're from and is interested in a story or two. And there was that wonderful story that circulated widely online. Uh, this was not about the Broadmoor from uh, the gentleman who had a photo taken with Charles uh, some speech or other, and then he had this terrible accent very much like Charles's, and Charles found out about it somehow. It's a little unclear how. His son, his son was the one who uh, uh, tweeted about this. I saw it on Twitter, but I think it was all over the place. And uh, Charles just went out of his way to write this gentleman a letter saying, you've had the same accent I have, and it's bad, you know, and he was not sugarcoating it. He said, it's going to be tough, and there are things you won't be able to do that you'd like to be able to do, but you've got to, here at least is what I did, and, and he sort of said, you've got to be tough and go on, and you can live a very worthwhile life, And uh, but it's, you know, you. but Charles was very, very, he didn't talk much about his disability at all, but no. to the degree that he gave people advice, or the degree that he sh- modeled a kind mm-hmm. of certain way of behavior, it was really... Uh, uh, hard-headed and, you know, unsentimental in a way, I would say. I mean, what he did was amazing. If you, The more you knew him and when, you know, when he let down his guard a little, if he knew you better, maybe let you do him mm-hmm. a little favor in some, in some respects, something he couldn't handle. But he was extremely uh, proud. He didn't want to be patronized. He didn't want to be sort of helped, you know, mm-hmm. more than he had to be. He was grateful by people who quietly might have made an arrangement to make his life easier. But he really wanted to be, you know, not pitied in any way. That was part of his real sense of dignity that he conveyed, I think. And one reason I think people were so impressed with him. There were people who didn't know he was in a wheelchair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Didn't that happen all the time? Oh, yeah. 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 A lot of Broadmoor attendees would say that. Like, I had no idea. <laughs> a, a guy who lives in my building works in Hall of the States, and he was telling me that he would see Dr. Krauthammer with his customized van and noted, noted that, you know, because Dr. Krauthammer drove himself many places, mm-hmm. saying that he, he almost ran him down a couple times in the garage because he thought he was, you know, hurrying to get to Nat's Park. Mm-hmm. He had to drive himself because of the vans. Mm-hmm. I mean, the funny thing, yeah. Charles, Charles couldn't get out of the wheelchair into your passenger seat. So mm-hmm. people, you know, a lot of big shots get driven around Washington mm-hmm. or even not so big shots. Mm-hmm. If you're going to TV, they send yeah. a car for you, you know. Uh, Charles had to drive himself. Uh, and I, it, driving with Charles, you did it, I'm sure, a few oh, times. Oh, I was did. quite yeah. an experience. Yeah. I mean, he had this van. He was, had one of the first, I think I heard that, I remember, one of the first of these kind of customized vans yeah. that allowed a quadriplegic to use mm-hmm. his hands to pull some levers, and, mm-hmm. and that was it. He couldn't use his legs at all, and the hands weren't fully you know, mobile or, or the way uh, he had limited use of mm-hmm. those. Nonetheless, he drove this van everywhere. He did. Uh, long yeah. distances to New York mm-hmm. uh, and further uh, to the Nats Park almost oh, every yeah. night after special report. But from the office to Fox, this is downtown Washington. This is not like, you know, an easy drive in some <laughs> suburban, you know, from one office park in the suburbs to another. You're talking about the congested streets of Washington, crazy cab drivers. And Charles just barreled along in this van. I thought he was a pretty good driver. I mean, I rode with him a number of times to ball games and different things. And uh, uh, he was a much better driver than I am. Is that right? Jeez. Mm-hmm. Our daughter went with him, and I can't really remember the circumstance. I wasn't there, but I don't, they went, I don't know. He gave her a ride. Somehow they were downtown together, the family kind of thing. And he said, anyone want a ride? I'll give some people a ride. You know, people started dividing up the way you do after <laughs> to get somewhere else, I think, as I recall. It was like a two-part occasion, maybe it was. And Rebecca, who was, uh, I think, probably in junior high at the time, went with him and I still remembers that ride as being it was harrowing. Ter- terrifying. Well, what if, yeah, Charles was not against taking shortcuts occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, he had this one place. There was that one street next to his building. His office was above the Palm on 19th Street. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those little streets, not like L or M, one of the big mm-hmm. streets in Washington, but a little kind of street. And it was one way, but it was much faster for him if he was going to Fox mm-hmm. to go 
cut through that street the wrong way. And it wasn't a busy, that busy a street. So, you know, 80% of the time, there was no one coming the other way. But occasionally there were. <laughs> and Charles would just face them. To, yeah, this, this car was big. I mean, this truck, this van was big. And so people would maybe back away and let him go wrong way for at least a block. But We'll be back here in a minute on the Daily Standard podcast after a word from our sponsor. If you ever shower or brush your teeth or try to make your hair look presentable, I've got good news for you. The Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, and even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. I've been a Dollar Shave Club uh, member myself, actually, for a number of years. I'm, I'm a cheapskate. I go with the, the the humble twin razor. But And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their Daily Essential Starter Kit. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their world-famous Shave Butters, their best razor the six-blade executive. Keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, which is really good, I might add, or anything else you might need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. Well, uh, before we uh, conclude this, I I think it may be his most recent and last contribution to the standard was uh, decline as a choice. Do, what do you guys think over his, you know, 40-some-odd contributions? I mean, obviously, there, there are so many, but uh, what, what do you think might be the kind of standout thing that you'd encourage readers to read, aside from all of it? No, that, mm-hmm. one, that one is very strong. That was a talk he gave in 2009, I think earlier, 2010, mm-hmm. early in the Obama years, trying to say we don't have to uh, decline, and it's not a matter of accommodating to <coughs> decline. Mm-hmm. Obama wants America to be weaker. That's his vision of uh, how America, how the world can be better. And that's a huge mistake. Charles was a strong advocate of American leadership and American power and and uh, did not think, I mean, partly because of the reasons Charles, Fred mentioned earlier that, you know, the world would be – we'd seen what happens when America withdraws from the world. That's mm-hmm. not a pretty picture. So that piece is very much re- worth reading. I do think the piece from 1998 after Zion is really a, a very important, almost philosophic piece about Judaism and Israel and, and so forth. He wrote a piece after – Kasparov lost in 1996, I think it was, to Deep Blue, uh, which was sort of about what the future might look like with automated, you know, automation and mm-hmm. uh, artificial intelligence. I'm not sure we called it that back then, uh, which was stands up very well. And that's he was he had been a science he had wanted to be a scientist when he was young, decided that there he wasn't going to be a genius in physics. So what was the point? <laughs> and so then he went into sort of politics and medicine and then mm-hmm. back into so then psychiatry and then ended up back uh, into political science but then back in, in actual in journalism um, but there are lots of good pieces in the Standard and the Post and Time Magazine and the New Republic mm-hmm. and obviously a lot of them are, are collected in his uh, collection what was that called? Things That Matter Yeah, he always joked about having a second collection, Things That Don't Matter <laughs> you know, one of the things he liked about the, uh, about the Standard was he got a lot of feedback from his his pieces. I remember him once telling me that uh, when he would do these Time essays, and of course the Reagan Doctrine, that famous essay, was in Time magazine. He said, get no feedback from Time magazine. And of course, that, uh, he liked the feedback. You know, the article said uh, Charles would take on very tough subjects, ones that uh, uh, most people didn't. I remember a, a piece he did on torture, and he had a very... Uh, it wasn't just a condemnation or or a flat support of torture. Uh, it was a, an extremely, uh, I, I would never say nuanced, about a Charles piece because he was uh, his uh, uh, the points he made were always very sharp. Uh, the uh, but that uh, 
But that piece uh, was brave. You know, one thing about about people coming to uh, becoming conservatives, or no, I guess people who have have become conservatives for a long time, when they're in Washington, which is a liberal town, they will sort of. Um, you know, sort of soften their views and and so on, uh, and not be as conservative as uh, uh, and, and as they might really be. Uh, Charles didn't do that, uh, and that's why I thought that United Nations piece was so interesting because he was not taking on strongly uh, a position that many of the people he would meet in in Washington would uh, congratulate him for. You know, just on that one point you mentioned quickly in passing, you would never say nuance. That's not, I mean, Charles had that incredibly crisp and direct mm-hmm. and sharp-edged, you might say, yeah. gri- very mm-hmm. gripping, really, writing style. But he's really proof, and this is true of all the great writers of Orwell and I think others like him, uh, that you can be both very uh, crisp and sharp as a writer, but also complex. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean mm-hmm. you have to be simple-minded, right? Yeah. It's just he didn't let it get all muddy and wandering around mm-hmm. and with excessive qualifications in each sentence. But I think that's a very important as a writerly mm-hmm. matter as opposed to the substance. One lesson that younger writers could really take from reading Charles Krauthammer. Well, uh, Bill, Fred, thanks for joining me today on the Daily Standard podcast. Uh, Charlie Sykes will be recording live from beautiful Aspen, Colorado tomorrow. We hope you'll Speaking tune in. Speaking of liberals and, yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> and well, bien pensant types, we'll see if Charlie sounds like a, like a very earnest, concerned liberal tomorrow, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs>